This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo, and their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to Be Real on the Playlist Podcast Network. It is your genre-hopping, movie-reviewing, and reappraising podcast. As always, we're brought to you by California College of the Arts' Writing MFA program. Very thankful for that, and check out all the other wonderful shows on the playlist. But today, we are here for a terrific episode to uh, celebrate the uh, life and legacy of uh, one John Singleton, who passed away uh, at the end of April. And as this is an essentials episode, we're going to talk about his work. Um, I've said too much. I need to introduce myself and us. I'm Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And joining us, a special guest today, uh, an author, a podcaster, Tochio Nyabuchi. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you so much for having me. This is, this is quite the honor. This is quite the honor. We're the ones who are honored. Um, so we're going to talk about, we're going to focus on three Singleton movies today. Uh, Boys in the Hood, Poetic Justice, and Rosewood. I'm happy to touch on others. I'm happy to, uh, to stand for others. Um, but Tochi, let's talk about kind of why you're here. And maybe Noah, you can draw this connection. Did you study John Singleton during film school? So yeah, so it's, it's interesting. I... Growing up in an immigrant household, I was always like one step removed from like just African-American culture. And so our house was very like Nigerian-American, but not necessarily like black American. So I was late to a lot of things, a lot of just like typical cultural markers of being an African-American in like the 80s and 90s. And, you know, things like Martin, you know, uh, In Living Color, like, the, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, the Arsenio Hall show. And one of those things was Boys in the Hood. Mm. And so it wasn't until film school that I actually saw Boys in the Hood for the very first time. And what was interesting about that was by then I had ingested all this, like, knowledge and, and, and sort of craft talk about storytelling. And that was the context in which I was watching that movie that I watched Boys in the Hood and I saw in Doughboy in particular, a figure like just as tragic, if not more tragic than Hamlet. Mm. Like that was the immediate like point of comparison in my mind. So not only was it this incredible sort of treatise on the sort of the, the urban black experience for a lot of black males, it was also just this like masterclass in dramatic narrative. Hmm. That's amazing. Well, maybe, Tochi, do you feel like you can give us a little, like, singleton background here? Like, a little bit of the bio, as familiar as you are? I was curious, too, if we had, like, overarching singleton, like, theories or just, like, his signatures as a director before we got into the three films. 
Certainly. I think the, you know, he was, he was, you know, born in, in LA. So like that is very much his, you know, in much the way that, that Mississippi was for Faulkner, like LA is for Singleton or was for Singleton. Um, he was in USC's filmic writing program, studied under Margaret Merring. Um, and that is very much the, the well that he draws from with regards to a lot of, if not the, the specifics of his movies, you know, geographically or whatnot, then at least the the themes, right? And he's mm-hmm. done, you know, stuff beyond this. He's, you know, he did an adaptation of, of Shaft. You know, he's directed episodes of Empire, an American crime story. You know, he was, I believe, a, a co-creator of an FX show. Uh, I want to uh, say Snowfall. Snowfall, Snowfall. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's very much, his thing, I think, is he's very much uh, concerned with depictions of black life, particularly within the inner city, right? And Mm -hmm. in a very sort of comprehensive way, too. And it's interesting, too, watching him sort of navigate that, because there are times where it does get kind of like respectability politics, you know, especially if you're watching like movies like Baby Boy and whatnot, which is sort of like, you know, oh, like there's this pathology of these like young black men running around, like having kids and not caring for them. But it's at the same time, it's, it's very much like it gets into the sort of interiority of a lot of those characters. Right. Yeah. Well, I think all these movies are definitely, I mean, he wrote two of them. They're both like very much something that needs to be said, you know, about a certain, and there's a lot of overlapping both in casting and in sort of these choices of these archetypal figures. We'll get into that with Mm -hmm. each specific movie. Um, But it's interesting how, you cannot accuse any of these three movies, at least, of not having <laughs> politics. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Sure. <laughs> so let's dive into Boys in the Hood, shall we? Uh, which is his first movie, 1991. Um, he became, in, in that year, the, the youngest person and the first uh, black director ever nominated in the Best Director category at the Oscars. Um, although I was thinking about that. That, of course, means that Spike Lee did not receive a nom two years earlier, which... Uh, don't care for right. that, but um, but yeah, it can still consider. I think uh, maybe the is it is it pr- fair to say probably the first movie mentioned when you say John Singleton? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, definitely. And like you know when when these sort of in memoriam pieces came out and whatnot, that was you know by a long shot the movie that was most talked about. It really has like the verve of a first movie too. I felt like. He, de- he like famously had said that because they shot the movie in order, you could see him growing as a filmmaker, like as the movie goes, uh-huh. which is amazing to me because it's true. Just like the ambition of each shot, you know, going from like sort of handheld kind of close up to more artful things, you know, by the time they get to like the barbecue or even like the, um, at the end with the co- several car chases and shootouts, like, He's gr- you can see him figure out how to make a movie. So the the background here is this this is a movie that takes place on two timelines. Though I have to say I found the first one 1984 so sort of um, 
uh, patient and naturalistic that I wasn't even sure a time jump was coming, um, having never yeah. seen the movie before. I was like, maybe Ice Cube and Cuba Gooding will just show up in these kids' lives. But no, that's not what happens. <laughs> we start with the, the main cast um, of, of Trey and Doughboy and Ricky um, as 10-year-olds. And uh, there's a really great scene with with Trey in in school, and he's sort of like asked to teach the class, and he uh, he gets a, gets in a fight, um, and then his mom, played by Angela Bassett, is like, "You signed a contract with me, Trey, that if you acted out again, you would go live with your father." Furious Styles, played uh, iconically by Lawrence Fishburne, um, and so uh, Trey has to go live um, in South Central with. Uh, with Furious and uh, they bond a little bit and you sort of like see the lives of these kids and you get a glimpse at like the 16 year olds they might become who sort of like steal their football and they get kind of a, a glimpse at, at what that that danger and that antagonism could look like uh, and then there's a, like a really sort of housey and fishing trip and then we jump forward in time to a barbecue where they're all I think maybe 17 18 um, yeah seniors in high school um, and you get a sense that uh that Trey has taken a lot of Furious's teachings to heart. He's now played by Cuba Gooding. Uh, Morris Chestnut is a football star who's trying to get into USC. Um, uh, that's Ricky, and then uh, and then Ice Cube plays plays Doughboy, who's who's been in and out of jail, I believe. Uh, and they all kind of come back together in this scene, and then we sort of see their lives unfold. It's not a movie that's like super super heavy on plot, which is one of the things that's like great about it. It's very relaxed. Yeah. Um, it's a slice of life. As you said, like he really wants to communicate something about black life at this time in this place. Why is it that there's a gun shop on almost every corner in this community? Why? Yeah. For the same reason that there's a liquor store on almost every corner in the black community. Why? They want us to kill ourselves. We got a problem here? We got a problem here? Can we have one night where there ain't no fight, nobody gets shot? No, mama's boy. Something wrong? Something wrong? Yeah. It's just too bad you don't know what it is. And Tochi, I don't know if you know this, but like one of Chance's favorite things when it comes to movies of this nature is is the quality of the hang. And it's very good. So the let's hang. talk about the hang. Just like yeah. just people hanging out trading barbs. And that's like uh, what most of this movie Yeah. It's Does really it- what it is. Does it feel real? Is it fun? Um, and when people are just chopping it up on the porch, like mm-hmm. this movie's tremendous. Yeah, no, absolutely. It really, really, really excels at that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's it's interesting too because its biggest challenge is transitioning from the lexicon of children to the lexicon of young men. And I think it does that in a way that's both funny because it shows that they're both like kind of the same conversations they've been having for mm-hmm. seven years mm-hmm. with like just different ways of saying things and the positions, you know, maybe they've changed slightly depending on life experience, but they're mostly the same. But then just the circumstances around, you know, this adult life are far more traumatic. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you just don't notice it as much in the child's one, but I'm saying that and now I'm remembering that they like interact with a dead body briefly. Yeah, it's that it's that very iconic line is you want to see a dead body. Like even Kendrick on that on that Pusha T song, Nostalgia, I think he starts out with I think he starts his verse with you wanna see a dead body. Mm. Direct call out to Boys of the Hood. Yeah. What are the uh 
What are the standout performances here? They're all really good. Can we can we start there? Oh man, Doughboy, man, Doughboy. Yeah, like, you're all about just... Ice Cube in this. <laughs> yeah, he. It's just it's it's so like iconic. It just it just felt it felt it felt so big, but at the same time, it felt supernatural, right? Like yeah, it felt right. it felt just like he was just like being right. It was one of those naturalistic performances, right? Where you know it's it's like the type of thing where. You know, they hire actors off, you know, a director will hire an actor off the street or whatever, like to get that sort of authenticity or whatever. There was that sort of verite about it. At the same time, it's infused with such like narrative tragedy. I just can't like I cannot get over that. It's sure. an interesting choice, too. And like maybe something to be said about John Singleton's like overall sensibility that he chooses to focus really on Trey and not Doughboy as the yeah. protagonist of the movie. Because ultimately it does have that like sort of morality that we can talk about as we like go towards rating this movie. But I think I agree with you that in fact the more interesting narrative and the more interesting maybe movie would be looking at just the Doughboy character and having Trey as more of the, you know, you could go this way, like your brother, who's the football star this way, mm-hmm. like your neighbor who d- does this, but like, what do you, cause the only person who makes the real choice is Doughboy. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is I, I actually really appreciate having the Doughboy character sort of on the periphery because mm-hmm. it reinforces this, this feeling of, I know that guy. Right. Like there's you know, you're watching this movie and instantly you're thinking of that that dude, you know, who is exactly in the Doughboy situation. Right. So it's not right. like he just happens to be the one that mom hits, even if it was his brother who did the thing. Yeah, exactly. Like we all know a Doughboy and it's like it's he like doesn't that. deserve it, but he kind of does. Exactly. So I think I like I, I really, really, really like as compelling as his story would be, you know, as its own sort of vertebrae to a narrative. I do really like having him sort of like in the corner of your vision and being like, you know, he's 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 someone I know. He's mm-hmm. not me. He's someone I know. Well, That's still totally not being a caricature, too. I mean, he's absolutely so, he's so real. Yeah. Like that scene where Trey ultimately gets out of the car that night um, instead of going after the people who killed Ricky is like nothing needed to be said. There's there are such mm-hmm. real people that like, yes, I will pull over the car. I know why you have to get out. And, you know, why I'm not going to get out of the car. That's such a powerful moment like that they don't say anything really about motivation, especially with the I mean, Lawrence Fishburne in this is incredible. Uh, Unbelievable. So good. And like such a good physical performance to showing just like what seven years of like living with that kind of stress every day, like does to a human body. True. Like, I mean, he's no older. And in fact, he's like only like eight years older than um, his son. Uh, yeah. Cuba Gooding Jr., which is such a funny casting thing. Uh, but yeah, he's great. And then he gives this impassioned monologue and then there's something, yeah, almost Shakespearean about the fact they have to say like, almost nothing in the next scene, just because everything's sort of been put out there. You bad. You got to shoot somebody now. Well, here I am. Come on, shoot me. You bad, right? Look, I'm sorry about your friend. My heart goes out to his mother and his family, but that's their problem, Trey. You my son, you my problem. 
want you to give me the gun. Oh, I see. You want to end up like little Chris in a wheelchair, huh? Right? No, no. You want to end up like Doughboy, huh? No? Give me the motherfucking gun, Trey. It's a very sort of interesting and poignant point you you bring up about the stress of living in or growing up in certain environments, right? So you think about think about somebody like John Singleton, right? And he like he grew up, you know, I would say, let's see, when when was he born? He was he was born 1968, right? So he's like coming of age in the like seven, like war on drugs seventies and the eighties the with the you know Reaganomics like all of that and he's in L.A. during that time right well it's snowfall time too it's uh, yeah it's like the height of the crack epidemic at least for myself being the generation like after that you know looking up at you know big brothers and father figures and whatnot who who lived through that. You know, it's it's super young to die at 50. At the same time, I imagine a lot of those people who are contemporaries of somebody like John Singleton, you know, will look at the the age that he that he passed away at and be like, I I get it. Like this is, you know, this is what happens. Yeah. Hmm. Well, there's something so interesting too about this movie because it surprised me to read that this movie is, of course, a year before Rodney King. Right. Yeah. So he, this dude is almost screaming Rodney King before that even goes down. And yep. I think part of the fact, and we'll get into poetic justice in a second, but part of that movie is almost like this confusion of how he could have made a movie before Rodney King. You know, sort of getting back into this, because most of that was shot, like, and you can see in the background still fresh carnage from those riots. Which is incredible, but it's it's a, he's really commenting on something that hasn't been witnessed before, which is the state of race relations in urban Los Angeles, and is still able to communicate. Which of course we 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 know is true that like, but also this is just this is just life. Like even in Rosewood, with this terrible like uh, tragedy fueled by racial hatred happening, like life is still like going on during it and right mm-hmm. before it, and that's the same thing that's happening. In this movie, I mean, I, I love that you, Tochi, were able to see sort of like the the mythic through lines in here. But I just I love that there's very little like manufactured drama yeah. in this movie, like scene to scene. I was thinking about that. There's a scene where Ricky sits down for the SAT, right? And he's got to get a 710 or a, over a 700 to get into USC. And I was fully expecting like this movie to like, are we going to get some kind of cheating thing? Like what's going to happen in the scene? And the whole point of that scene is just a look that Cuba Gooding gives his friend. Um, mm-hmm. to encourage him and, and get him through. And the to let that breathe is so awesome as a filmmaker. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what's sort of nice about this movie, too, that maybe I wasn't expecting just because of its reputation is the fact that it really doesn't have that much violence in it. Yeah. I guess I was expecting it to be less sort of charming in the first two-thirds, almost three-quarters of it, just getting to know these characters in a way that it makes the last act so tragic because it's not like, you know, it hasn't certainly been like Game of Thrones or anything where Mm -hmm. like characters are dropping left and right and you can't really hold on to anybody. Like these are guys that like you really, you've seen their whole lives. You've seen the trajectory and how much, and I guess this is Singleton's point, of a fucking waste it is when these guys aren't allowed to like reach that climax of their own potential. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too the, the issue of body count, because I remember 
like when I was younger, hearing this movie and also hearing it invoked in the same breath as movies like Paid in Full or Kill a Season or Belly, like these hood movies, right? With these really epic, like, you know, shootout. It was just like gang life, right? Or it was just like hustler life, right? And they were always starring these rappers and whatnot. And, you know, slight digression, I will say the opening two minutes of Belly are like some of the most stunning opening two minutes I've ever seen in a film ever. Anyway, um, it, so it was interesting because I think I also came into Boys in the Hood with that expectation. I was like, okay, I'm going to have to watch somebody get beat down. I'm going to have to watch somebody get stomped out. Like there's going to be at least one, like at least two drive-by. Like it's going to be a Hood movie, right? right. It was going to no, be the Rosewood of Urban in Los Angeles. <laughs> I remember one of the most astounding things about Boys in the Hood was that like was how young Singleton was when he when he made it and like when he got nominated for best director best original screenplay for this movie. I was like what on earth because I was like several years older than him at that point when I watched the movie and I was like are you kidding me? Which is what 23? Are you kidding me? Yeah, he's like 23. Oh, he was like gosh. 23 years old. <laughs> That's super annoying. We're past it. One of the biggest things I think, though, we're forgetting about this movie is like what the movie would then slap us in the face uh, for forgetting is like the wonderful women. Yeah. Like Tyra Farrell, especially as the mom of both uh, of Doughboy and Ricky, uh, is so fabulous because she has this sort of tough exterior. And you think that she maybe is sort of an anti-hero, but by the end of it, there's such an emotional change in her because you could tell, like, it was all for a purpose. It was to mm-hmm. get this kid into whatever level his football skills would take him to try to get him out of that life. And her failure to do so is just so crushing. It's, I think, one of the better performances in the movie. It's true. I I mean, I would equally shout out the probably my favorite scene in the whole thing is where uh, Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fishburne have coffee because. Yeah. Oh, my God. So good. Yeah. That's a, that's a scene where you can like feel a, you know, a blow up between exes who've grown apart in every way coming. Right. And you're just like, this is going to be a throwdown in what is a very interesting, very white space compared to like what else, the other things we've seen in the movie. And it ends up. It's it's so representative of like how good the writing is because like you really think the movie's gonna do one thing as a dramatic beat, and then the it just ends up with her being like, yeah, you're proud of yourself because you did a good thing and you took in your son, but it's not something that women don't do every day. And I think the climactic line of that is, um, so you're cute, but you're not special. <laughs> and he kind of just like <laughs> chews on that, and then the scene is over. It's tremendous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And of course, early performances from both Regina King and Nia Long, who are both great. Yes. Right. Uh, yes. Um, should we rate this movie? Well, yeah. Well, let's Tochi. I don't know if you've if you're familiar with our rating system, but two gradients. Uh, the first, so we do it: are good or bad, good or bad. So the first, mm-hmm. good or bad, is related to like: is the movie well made? Is it technically proficient? Does it have you know whatever act structure? Does it does it feel like a good movie? And the second one is, was it enjoyable to watch? Would you just like throw it on for fun? Um, this week's going to be challenging. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. To you. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. So I think, I think the first gradient, at least for me, is an easy good, like in, fantastically made, you know, in terms of, you know, how it's filmed. The, the writing is just incredibly deft. The acting performance is tremendous. All of that. 
if this were on TV, I don't know that I would like keep the channel on. Not because it's not like compelling viewing, but because I just might not be in that mood. Yeah. It's not like it's not like, you know, Man on Fire or Den of Thieves or whatever, which like, you know, when those come on like Showtime or like TBS or something like that, you're like, oh yeah, <laughs> no, I I should sit down and watch this. No, it's like it's the type of movie that like, you know, it it's it compels, it makes you feel, it makes you think and and I'm not always in the mood for that, so so I don't I don't know. I'd give it a good good. I mean, I think that okay. I I can see where I might be a little like wary of the uh, you know the the very emotional sad ending, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but I feel like the journey there's enough good hang yeah. to really carry it. Um, and yeah, <laughs> good the hang, first, yeah, the first one isn't easy. I'm I I loved this movie. I'm gonna give it a good yeah. good for sure. Yeah, I mean, this movie to me is like an as good, if not better, stand by me sort of story that I think if I like caught it, you know, 10 minutes in or something on cable, I'd be like, ooh, Boys in the Hood (laughs) and watch it again. Because there's definitely more to unpack than like we were able to get into in this amount of time. So yeah, yeah, I'm going to agree with Chance that I think it's a good good. Cool. All right. Should we talk about Poetic Justice, the sophomore movie? Let's talk about yep. the sophomore Let's slump. Do it. <laughs> no, <laughs> coming out swinging. Not I to think... tip my hand too much, but like any great artist, the sophomore slump yeah. is a thing for a reason. I have. Yeah, the se- the second album's always tougher to pull off than the first. Her name is Justice. The reason why I love you? Because I was in the county jail. You sent me all them nice poems. To escape the violence of the streets, she needed the poetry in her heart. You've got to move on. There's another man out there somewhere. His name is Lucky. What y'all niggas doing? Looking for some buses to Jack. To face the madness around him. All he had was the music in his soul. Fate brought them together. This is Justice. Justice is just Lucky. And you already know Chicago. What's up, baby? Baby. Anger kept them apart. I'm a black woman, okay? I deserve respect. Walk your ass home. But for both of them... Girl, you know he tripping because he like you. The road ahead was the only way to leave the pain behind. I heard from a friend today and she said you were... So maybe we could get into it via this. I feel like this movie, in the absence of what maybe went down a little easier as like autobiography or influenced by some things from Singleton's autobiography, this movie is immediately trying to inter-conversation with other Hollywood genres. Classic romances, rom-coms, fairy tales, the title card says Once Upon a Time, um, like Preston Sturgis-y road trip movies. Um, and But it still is it also attempting that very grounded, similar setting, characters in similar places in their lives to Boys in the Hood. Um, whether it has that harmony, I don't know. But there is, like most sophomore efforts, there there might be looked at one way more ambition here maybe what do we think yeah i think i think you get at one of the i guess you could call it principal flaws of this movie is that it pull it i think there's a way that you can combine all of the aforementioned elements into a cohesive whole I mm-hmm. don't think that's represented by poetic justice right uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very hard to do 
Um, exactly. It would it would be like a like I think the person who would be able to pull that off would be like the twelfth imam, which is to say that like we would all be a long time dead before that person comes along. <laughs> uh, I will say though, I think like similar to a lot of Singleton's other efforts, you know, what this may lack in quality it more than makes up for with cultural capital, right? And what I'm thinking of in particular is the movie poster of Janet Jackson with box braids. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like that, that is such an iconic image. And it's interesting too, because I think Singleton got asked about um, like whose idea it was to to have the to have Janet Jackson wear those those box braids, and you know he said that it was is a collabo between him, um, uh, Janet, and their dance choreographer Fatima Robinson uh, because they had watched Michael Jackson's "Remember the Time" video, oh. which Singleton had directed, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and so he brought he brought. Um, I, I believe it was, he brought Fatima and a couple of the other dancers over to like hang with Janet. They all became friends. And then they like, out of that, the conversation about Janet's hair happened. So like that, like something like that, I think is huge. And like, even though that's not something that's reflected in the quality of the movie. It's, yeah, I was going like, to say like the, the, the effort and care you put into saying all of that. <laughs> it like, it, it says absolutely nothing about the quality of the movie, but I do think it's very interesting in the, in demonstrating the circularity of cultural sort of symbiosis that goes on with Singleton and his like work. Yeah. And it's reflected in some of the casting in this movie too. Like Q-Tip plays your boyfriend in the beginning, just like the cultural moment yeah. and the uh, you know inclusion of, of musicians and just like hip hop culture in general in this movie is like pretty noteworthy and is something you would not see even like five years later probably. Yeah. With the same. I mean, I say, <laughs> and please disagree with me, but the other famous casting in this of Tupac Shakur. I have to say, he is no Ice Cube, though, <laughs> if you're going for musicians turned actors. Yeah, no, he's definite. <laughs> I think it's interesting. I feel Lightning like. Lightning did not strike twice. No, I feel like Tupac's acting career is more a sort of, at least for me personally, strikes me more as a curiosity than like, wow, he really like did that, you know? And I feel like that's on that's on very. Very intense display with poetic justice. The charisma is there, but channeling that yeah. into what we would call a perform... It, the charisma is almost uncomfortable sometimes. Sometimes he is yeah. so mad at justice with like very real like Tupac anger, the weight of the world, yep. that it's, like, it's hard to watch almost. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. It's borderline sort of abusive in so much that it doesn't make him a particularly sympathetic leading man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, you know who I found a more sympathetic character, though, was Billy Zane playing that movie <laughs> within a movie character who, like, doesn't understand why this person who he's pretty sure isn't a hooker is, like, just downing red wine. <laughs> it's Lori Petty is, uh, is the other actor. Is that the sister from uh, uh, League, League of Their Own? Own? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, that's such an interesting choice. And again, goes back to this movie wanting to let you know from the outset, like, we have seen movies, we are among movies, and we are a movie. Yes. 
Yes. Right, but it, it it's a movie that I think has too much money. Is that safe to say? Like that is such an mm. unnecessary for what is otherwise a scene that has nothing to do with what movie is on screen. It's this very violent prologue uh, of the fusion of Janet Jackson's character and her first sexual experience ending in bloody murder. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, Billy Zane doesn't need to be in that prologue, like being in a <laughs> fake movie that John Singleton are also made just to project onto the screen. It's yep. curious. What do we make of the character of Justice? This movie is named after her, but she's not even like the top two people who are the most interesting in this movie. Mm. Yeah. Like, yeah. Or at least the movie doesn't. I, I don't know what her thing is. Like, is she's a poet, but then she decides to not go to college because of something. And then that's, uh, does she change? Does she, what happens? I don't know if you could speak to this, Tochi, in a screenwriting sense. There's an interesting move in this movie that's very different than Boys in the Hood, which is like the emotional climax of that movie, that beach scene up when they're near Mm -hmm. the bay is kind of like she finally tells us what her deal is, but we're like 75 minutes in. The story of her grandmother, the story of her name. Um, But that's much different than like being on the ground with kids and then seeing them grow into adults. It's an interesting sort of flourish. I don't know if it works. Yeah, no, it's like... um I see, and it's funny because I see it all, I see that all the time in like prose fiction, Mm -hmm. right? Where there will be this like revelation that supposedly explains it all at the end or like towards the end or what have you, you know? And sometimes it can take the form of like a monologue and it's like, oh, everything just like came together. I don't know that that works in film. And like, I don't, I hesitate to say that like the, broad sweeping generalization because I'm sure if I really thought about it I could come up with a couple examples of where that sort of thing has been done to good effect but I don't like I don't think it works here because the movie's about her but at the same time just like Noah said she's not the most interesting person in it mm-hmm. who is right. who do we think is is it Regina oh, King man. is it Isha I think Regina King is the most interesting because yeah. she's like clearly struggling with not only her sexuality but uh, an alcohol problem that is, of course, treating the fact that both these two movies, just every 30 seconds a helicopter goes by with its spotlight on. Right, yeah. So it's just people dealing with PTSD here and she's chosen to deal with it through drinking. And I think she gives a pretty compelling performance where it feels like she first has the answer for Janet Jackson to like get out of this headspace that's clearly holding her back. But then that by the end turns out to be a lie. Her performance stands out. And I, I, I don't know if it's just in contrast to, to Janet and Tupac, but it, it is odd for sort of like, she's the comic relief, but she's also like the deepest character. And she's mm. also in some ways you think for most of that road trip, the only one who's kind of getting what she wants out of this. Um, I mean, I think Regina King is great. She's great in everything. Oh yeah. Um, but she, yeah. Oh yeah. She really stands out here, maybe because there's oddly like more dimensionality to this secondary character than the than the first one than the. Uh, right. I mean, yeah. I I can I can relate as a writer like having more interesting secondary characters than protagonists. Do tell. So that's a very relatable. That's a very relatable, I guess, uh, position to be in. Where does that come um, from? That that problem. 
You know what's interesting? I like I don't know if there's some deeper sort of psychological dynamic at work when you know, a character in the periphery, because they're not in the spotlight and because they're like you're not obligated to completely like fill them in, they just sort of fill themselves in, mm. so to speak. So they're like they can be more laden with ambiguities than this character that you're completely, you know, that that's supposed to be as in the spotlight as possible in your story. I, I, I guess, I mean, that's just like a, a, a hypothesis that I'm throwing out there. But yeah, like I've seen it. I've seen it on multiple occasions where like I've watched a movie and been like, okay, the person who has like second or third billing in this movie is like really the most interesting person sure. in this movie. Like they're the most interesting character. They're the one this movie should have been about. Mm. You know, it's I want to see the movie yeah. about the two barbers who have mm. clearly this <laughs> feud going on that we know nothing about really. Yep. And they're like constantly getting phone calls that are never explained. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because that that very much reminded me of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Certainly. <laughs> he is very Shakespearean uh, in his sensibilities. But yeah, this movie really doesn't have much of a script. It definitely has yeah. two famous people, not necessarily mm -hmm. actors, and access to a postal van. And <laughs> that seems to be what they had. Yeah. If it had been just a road trip movie, I think that could have been really cool. I mean, because you obviously... If it was just one trip to Oakland, yeah, or whatever they had to do. Yeah, you have, like, you yeah. know, their versions of, like, Homeric stop-offs and this sort of, like, ideal, like, idealized black family reunion where they even say there's, like, wow, there's no I love violence. when they crash the reunion. That's incredible. It's great. And Maya Angelou's there. And she, we should say that she was the author of the, the poetry you hear mm -hmm. um, Janet narrating through the movie, um, which is, you know... Makes it good, but then you're like, I'm Justice wrote furative size. She wrote that. <laughs> I don't know. That is funny. I don't know. Movies with people reading poetry, as witnessed by the movie Patterson, is an inherently boring oh, thing to do. You're killing me. I'm, I'm slain. Um, <laughs> so, where do we stand? Where, where do we want to rate poetic justice, you guys? I'll, it was Toshi you went first, so I'll say this time that Poetic Justice is a bad, bad. I would probably have to agree. I think that, I think that really weirdly, unlike Boys in the Hood, there's like a failure of imagination about like what people will do in a conversation as it turns bad. And this movie is just full of people kind of going for the jugular of each other in really like unambiguous kind of ugly ways that then right. because of the because of its aspirations to be a romance movie it then just sort of sweeps aside at the end where i think tupac literally says you're but you forgive me right and almost like answers his own question it's like yes we are done we are good here um <laughs> i just wasn't buying unfortunately so probably yeah, it has that. all like the weird quirks and maybe blemishes shall we say of boys in the hood without the charm and like the underlying interesting story about someone coming of age. Yeah. Tochi, I, what do you think? I would give it a bad good. Okay. So bad. You enjoyed watching of, it, but you didn't think it was a good movie. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And also like it's as, as, Occasionally funny and curious and unintentionally funny, I should say, and curious as Tupac's film career is. I do find <laughs> it, I do find it oddly compelling. 
Um, so there is that, but yeah, like it's got, you know, it's, it's Regina King and it's, it's Tupac and like it unintentionally, at least to me, unintentionally funny at times performance. And it's got Janet with the box braids and like, it's just, it like, it has all these, it has a cultural impact that I think goes far beyond the like actual merits of the movie. And like, just based on that, if it were, if it were on TV, I would, I would catch it. And my Angelou's in it. Like, <laughs> right. It does have all these like interesting people in it. Like there's like a yeah. sort of like a sort of haunted pleasure of like seeing these people on screen. Right. You know, Absolutely. It's sort of spooky to see Tupac like in a movie. Yeah. Like there was, there was a clip, there was a clip that was released shortly after Singleton's death of, it was just like a, like a random, like behind the scenes or whatever. It was basically. Yeah, they did a poetic justice, like 25th anniversary, like documentary thing. Yeah. So like, it's, it's this clip of him and Tupac in a foot race. Uh, that's incredible. Which is absolutely hilarious, but like you think about it, and there's so there's so much like black culture in that like like eight second clip. It's ridiculous. Who won the foot race? That's amazing. Yeah, who won? Um, you know, it they they got they got too far down in the distance uh, for me to tell. <laughs> it's like the it's like the video from High Flying Bird. Like you can't tell who won, but it's just exactly. that they did compete. Exactly. Exactly. Oh man. <laughs> okay, I think we can. I can. We think we can put this one to bed. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, can I? Since this is a Singleton Essentials episode, and and we might want to explore super briefly the other parts of the filmography, can I give a quick shout out to Higher Learning? Because I managed to catch that this mm. week, and I thought that movie was really good. It seems like directorially, like visually, like kind of a step up, um, and is it's definitely him exploring on a college campus, like. A lot of the ideas where these, you know, where Tupac and Janet just go to loggerheads and then the idea of either, you know, feminism or what Tupac is going through just kind of like dies there. Higher learning mm-hmm. is just like a whole dissertation of like 10 different characters, like figuring out what they all mean to each other racially, sexually, um, culturally, in terms of class in this space. Um, I thought that was a super interesting movie that was worth checking out. So. It seems like John Singleton's career feels like you can see him learning how to make a movie and like what it is he wants to say. So especially like when he gets to Rosewood is like, I think his, his masterpiece. He really knows how to direct a movie with Rosewood. He really knows how to direct it. And then he can go on to just like make weird things and like make a little money. Yeah. Like, which I think is the rest of his career. Too furious. Yeah. Too fast, too furious. Shaft. Four brothers. (laughs) <laughs> Four brothers abduction. I was yeah. maybe going to ask this at the end, but what what do we make of that career arc that he kind of stopped writing movies by like the end of the nineties and sort of became this person who took on studio projects? I mean, is that him? Is there is there a read on you know Hollywood in there? What do we think? Tochi, you can confirm writing's fucking difficult. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 tough. It's tough. Um, well, what's, what's interesting too, like that makes me, that makes me think a bit about what, or it makes me wonder at what the, the directorial and creative landscape was for black American creators in Hollywood at around the time that like Shaft happens. Right. Right. So like you, so, you know, you have Singleton, but like also too, like you have Spike Lee, you have all these other like 
you have these other like creators who are like visionaries in their own right, crafting, I guess you could call them their own sort of alternate visions of blackness in America. And on top of that too, you have like, you know, incredible actors like Denzel and what have you. Like you like I think there's this I mean, maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but I wonder if part of Singleton's legacy is the opening of doors. Hmm. And then once doors were sufficiently opened for like more and more and more talent to come through, he didn't necessarily have to have the pressure of being this like spokesperson. Because I feel like Boys in the Hood, it's easy to, to crown somebody as a spokesperson for black America when you watch that movie and it like look at it as this sort of thesis statement on like black urban America. And you're like, okay, he's the chosen one. He's our Baldwin. Like he's the only one that can speak for the, you know, and it's, I think this was a way of Singleton sort of clearing space for, for others. Yeah. I think that's a great take. Um, I wonder if to like, when you mentioned Spike and I think that his movies, his very personal movies also kind of stop making money around this time. I think 25th mm-hmm. Hour is like two, well, 2001, obviously. And then, you know, Bamboozled, people don't see. I mean, it's gotten great reappraisals in recent years. Uh, Summer mm-hmm. Sam, people don't see. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, like, what... The, we might have to look to a movie like Rosewood, which I was texting Noah earlier today, is such a, like, no-holds-barred in some way antidote to, like, shitty uh like white savior period pieces that mm-hmm. we get so often about this but people didn't go see this movie um yeah like yeah. it only made 13 million dollars which is a darn shame and i'm glad we can talk about it on the podcast but i yeah i wonder if like after that people are like uh you want to you want to direct too fast too furious you want to make a movie <laughs> with uh mark Wahlberg? <laughs> um so yeah what, I don't know. what's 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 funny too is like just to to you know to jump around a little bit I feel like Too Fast, Too Furious, this was before the Fast and Furious franchise really took off. So it was still like a movie about like these dudes in L.A. who drive fast cars and steal VCRs out the backs of trucks. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, so even James Cameron directed the second Alien. So Yeah. <laughs> I think Too Fast, Too Furious is one of the better Fast and Furious movies. Oh yeah, no, I I absolutely wholeheartedly. The agree. other ones don't really interrogate like race or class as much as Too Fast Too Furious like won't let go of it, which is yeah. Singleton. Yeah. Oh yeah. You don't think there's a lot to be read from them pulling that safe through the streets of Rio in like the fifth <laughs> one? <laughs> it's a it's in a, the streets uh, of Rio. Yeah, it just says a lot about like Americans coming in and fucking <laughs> stealing money from third world nations. It's it's a critique of of Western forms of capitalism. I'm sure, absolutely. Um, <laughs> okay, let's talk about Rosewood, shall we, guys? Um, yes. So this is 1997. It's his fourth film, but it's it's based um, on a real life uh tragedy the the like the the burning down uh, of rosewood in what 1923 uh yeah, like somewhere the florida panhandle yeah. so yeah we go into this town that so it's the 1920s um civil war has been over for a little bit not that much <laughs> that's a very good point um, and you have black people living with white people in this sort of not quite harmony where you know the slightest thing could go wrong uh at any moment but it hasn't up until this moment until ving rams as man 
comes to town, literally a man comes to town and through no fault of his own sets off this chain of events that is essentially the crime and to kill a mockingbird, but the absolute worst case scenario that unfolds. Yeah. Yeah. It's brutal. Um, yeah. So there's race war full on. Yeah. Like literal race war. In 1923, the black town of Rosewood was a land of opportunity. You've been drifting long, Mr. Man. Seemed like forever. Colored folks own all the land around here, all the businesses, too. Man can make a new start around here, make something of himself. Until the day, one woman's false accusation. Tell me the truth. Was it truly a color done this to you? Unleashed a fury against their town. If you find him, well, you know what to do. There'd be some trouble around here, sir. The show use your help. There ain't no way in the world one man got enough bullets for all them crackers. And a search for the guilty became a hunt. For the innocent. These are real folks dying. Women and children ain't done nothing wrong to no soul. Now, colored folk just can't be running all the time. There comes a time when you got to stand up and defend your rights. Rosewood is the is the black town, and Sumner is the white town, and they kind of like border on each other. And so you got Ving Rhames, and then you have uh, John Voigt, who owns a store. Um, which is, he's sort of like the only white person who like appears to, you know, like have a, have a storefront in, in actual Rosewood. Um, but they, yeah, they do have this kind of like uneasy uh, relationship and then sort of out of the blue, I don't know who that actor was, but yeah, just like a local woman is, is beat up by her lover played by Robert Patrick. Yeah, the guy, you know, he's right, yeah, the guy no from good. Terminator 2 comes into mm-hmm. town and really fucks everything up. Um, yep. And then, uh, with a with a, a definitely a basis in historical scapegoating is like, well, I, I I presume she was like, well, somebody's my husband will see these bruises, and so she completely fabricates that that uh, a black Rosewood resident um, beat her up. I don't even think she says that it was quote unquote Jesse Hunter, who's there's this guy they're all looking for who allegedly is like escaped from a chain gang. Everybody just assumes. I want to talk more about like just what happens in this movie when people say Jesse Hunter over and over again. Um, but, but yeah, and it just becomes this total, total fucking Well, that was tragedy. the thing too, because initially she says, I was just beat up, I wasn't raped. And then this immediately, this woman's like, did you hear that? She was raped. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ugh. Yep. Um, yeah. It's just by saying the word, it doesn't matter what the words are around the words. It's mm-hmm. just by hearing the word. And I mean, amazingly later, um, We'll hear the like sort of I would say the iconic line of this movie, um, where it's the N word is the same thing as guilty, mm. but it's like people like they they hear just these quick phrases. I mean, it's very like Trumpian or something, but like or Fox News, but like every time they hear like whatever rape, oh I wasn't raped. It doesn't matter. Let's mm-hmm. let's storm the other town. Let's burn it yep. to the ground. Yeah, and they can't hear that it was maybe a white person. Like yeah, that, no, that like if it someone presenting them yeah. with the truth just yields mm. violence. Yeah. And yet they all seem to know it, too. Like, yeah, they whatever, all know it. And by no the means. end, they were like, yeah, we shouldn't have done that. And then they move on with their lives. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, so maybe we could pick up where we le- left off real quick, which is Singleton as, as a director. Uh, there are moments in this movie where he 
he does what I watching four of his movies this week kind of saw it to be maybe his like calling card, which he's is he awesome with these scenes where seemingly contrasting things are happening that like only deepen uh both like either the irony or the reality of it. And it happens in this movie where uh where Sarah is on the porch of the she's like the matriarch of this carrier uh family called the carriers and Don Cheadle is is her son. Um and she's she's saying like I was the midwife to half of you to the lynch mob as Singleton is showing their just like grotesque rage and not hearing her of all the like the worst like white men hearing this and it's just, it's a total escalation of this thing that he's been doing since the very beginning which is the um Fishburne being like you gotta listen you gotta check out Ooh, Ooh Child and it's like this really like halcyon uplifting moment that is also like the end of Trey and his friends as innocence as they get hauled off to juvie he's great with these in-scene contrasts and like never more powerfully than than, than in this one and I don't know about you guys, but seeing Bruce McGill with such hate in his eyes was heartbreaking for me. Yeah. I, 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 I just, he just got to ride up his, some stairs uh, on a motorcycle and do that thing with his, his neck from Animal House. Like, I don't want to see him like <laughs> shooting people for no reason. Oh. It, was, it was very difficult. I know he's supposed to, he's supposed to be the sort of gruff, lovable supervisor and ride along and ride along too. Like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that You're was sort of like career rehabilitation. Finding Tom Cruise in uh, Collateral. Yeah, ex- exactly. So maybe maybe those later efforts are a bit of sort of a, you know, that was um, his apology tour. Exactly, exactly. Even no, it was but just I, the character. I think it. I think it. I think that goes to you know something that you were saying earlier, but that's a really powerful statement being made with this movie. Is that, you know, almost none of the white people like come out of this looking good. Nope. Like zero percent, I would say. I don't know. It's very, very, very it's so so it's interesting too that Singleton would do a movie about this because I think I think it's very easy, like even as even as a black American to to nurse certain stereotypes about the South, right? And to have a sort of this sort of antipathy towards and contempt of the South being this, being in many ways, it, at least in the popular memory, the locus of so much um, black pain, right? Right. Even though, even though you know, slavery was you know a a nationwide enterprise for a big chunk of this history of this country's history, and you know, northern segregation was was different only in color and shade from southern segregate. Like you know, even though like structural and institutional racism and all the places it sort of came from are sort of nationwide. I do think there is in the popular memory this idea that, you know, so much of what, so much of the horror that has been enacted on African-Americans came from the South, right? And so I think there was this interview where Singleton was asked about why he decided to tackle this subject. And I think he said um, that he had a very deep contempt for the South because he felt that so much of the horror and evil that black people had faced in this country is rooted there. So this movie, making this movie, was in some ways his way of dealing with that. And I just found that fascinating as a way of sort of... Well, isn't there like a deep sort of 
response almost that it feels like this movie is reacting to the critique of boys in the hood and poetic justice being like, well, why are these people like this? And it's like, yeah. you wonder why they're like this. Like, yeah, exactly. Well, you want to start from the beginning or the middle <laughs> yeah. or the end? Exactly. Like, we, let's do you do want the all. receipts? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so I think that is what makes this movie so much more powerful maybe. And maybe just like, not watchable to a, a population who doesn't want to deal with it, but it feels like because it is a singleton movie, it means more. Hmm. So Tochi, were you saying that you find it curious or fascinating just that he like, that there may have been like some catharsis in this or how he, how singleton like dealt with that? No, definitely. Like definitely, definitely, definitely that, you know, I, I think particularly if you're, if you're in the, if you're in the business of making myths, if you're a storyteller in this country, and if you're, if you're a black storyteller, like that comes with all sorts of baggage, right? And part of it is like, you know, where you come from, where you're raised and what have you, and what histories you feel obligated to tell and, and what sort of myths you grow up surrounded by. And it's interesting, I, like I do think that it's this idea that a lot of people, at least in my experience and in conversations that I've had with others, that they have, you know, they'll, they'll hear about something horrible happening to black people in the South and they'll be like, I just don't understand how black people can live in the South. You know, it's like that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Which completely like leeches any in sort of any, any sort of dignity and or agency from actual right. black people who are living well, in the Don South. What's Don Cheadle's right? line from this where he's like, this is my home. I was born and raised here. Nobody's exactly. going to tell me to leave my home. Exactly. So I feel like that is a, that, that line I feel like is the, and maybe I like, maybe I'm just like over psychoanalyzing uh, Singleton here, but I feel like that line is the terminus of a journey for him. Mm. Like to get to the place where he realizes like that's a legitimate statement and reason for remaining in this place that's populated right. with these bloodthirsty people. That's right. fascinating. Because that seems to be the underlying question like maybe coming out of white Hollywood when you direct the critical eye to Singleton, to Spike Lee, Mm -hmm. you know, to Jordan Peele is like, why would people choose to live like this? And -hmm. it's like, this is, this is our, this is home. Like this is like, that's, you shouldn't even be sort of putting it under, under that lens. Like that's like, we don't do the same for white characters who come from like horror, when they're portrayed in less than flattering ways. Mm -hmm. Like why not just like let these characters exist? And I think as you were saying earlier, Tochi, like just opening the door to that and just making the frame as solid as possible and being like, we can have complicated, nuanced characters of all stripes here is Mm -hmm. probably his biggest legacy. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about white characters being less than flattering because there are a <laughs> lot of them in this movie. Um, but I'm, I seriously mean, I to this movie's credit, I can't think of a movie that depicts like the failure of white morality from so many different angles, um, mm-hmm. just snowballing, joke intended, down the hill. Um, <laughs> and I really want to think about too, like I feel that Michael Rooker, who plays the sheriff, is like so oh, he gives up on it the quickest. <laughs> <laughs> but it's he has like a misgiving about this that he completely that he like repeats like to no one, but then but completely becomes like a, a rabid, like deranged like agent of this mob um, because he wants to be reelected sheriff. And it was just like this is a movie or this is a character that a lot of movies would sort of like 
go to greater lengths to humanize. And here he is just sort of being analogous to like what like today's GOP Congress people who like may not agree with like what the most like virulent of their base would say, but definitely want those votes and like will definitely yeah, be the, in the mob. He's, he's the Lindsey Graham of the lynch mob. Yeah. Like, I think the, the flip side to what you were saying earlier is that they could have also made him a caricature, like an overly racist, like, you know, the, the, the type of character that like Walton Goggins often gets asked to play. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, Walton a lot Goggins of these, is always looking for that role. Yeah. You know, I, you know, shouts out to him. But oh, man, that's that's, you know, he's he's the guy. He's the guy for that. Right. Uh, the but only like, real, it's, like, yeah, go ahead. But yeah, so like I think that it's interesting that they do capture this moment of it, that Singleton does capture this moment of ambivalence with him, where right. it's like it it and it's it's indicative of so much of what's going on in the movie with these people that know better, yeah, but just they they can't help themselves or they like it's just they're overtaken by this animalistic uh, impulse to just like to just unleash their race hatred. You were saying something interesting on text earlier, Chance, that you thought this movie treated racism like a disease. Yeah, it's completely infectious. I mean, fueled by, uh, by you know, <laughs> still gin <laughs> um, and like a history of, of, of scapegoating and just this just this like trump card for for everything in these like uh you know angry white people's lives it's so interesting and sad to watch how hard the black characters work in this movie in the first hour to communicate with these people to exist mm-hmm. to sometimes like scratch their back just so these towns can stay standing um uh but then it just doesn't fucking matter um yeah. because like there's it's like well uh we're you know, like true, the true like uh, end of this disease is just doesn't matter about all the hard sort of discursive work you put in. It's it's horrible to watch, but very smart. This movie yeah. makes me really understand why you would start with like a Dawn of the Dead as the first sort of allegory about systemic racism mm-hmm. because it has that sort of feel to it of like the zombies are coming you know something's they're gonna burn they just want to see you know us be killed they have no other interest and then in rosewood sort of giving that mob a name for what it is a lynch mob uh you know makes this almost a horror movie there's a ton yeah. of gore in this movie people are getting things cut off yeah mm-hmm. it's crazy yeah no it's like i mean the 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 you know, the the most recent apt analogy for some of what's going on here are the White Walkers from Game of Thrones. Like, that's literally, right. like, it's this this sort of pathology. There's a sort of supernaturalness to it where it's, like, you know, the, they're, they're captured by this curse and this impulse to literally just, like, wreak havoc in the most horrific way possible. But, um, yeah, no, I think that the, the idea of racism as a disease... You know, isn't necessarily something that you we'd seen a lot of before in film, uh, particularly in film by like popular directors and whatnot. And so I think that is a bit of a flashpoint, mm-hmm. I think, with Singleton and his work. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think historically you see racism as these like little outbursts and then like yeah. sort of they're swallowed up and like back into whatever wherever they came yeah. from. But they're like really, personal like, personal failings. Like that's what it is. Yeah. Right, right, right. You know, it's a rebellion that's easily put down by the good white folks. Um, Mm -hmm. And I get the sense that, like, John Voight 
like wouldn't agree to be in this movie if he didn't get to do the salute to Ving Rhames at the end. But even mm. he, like the would-be like Oscar Schindler of this movie, very, very late into the film is still like taking money to hide people. And the Bradley character, he's like, oh yeah, I could patch up your your bullet wound like if you would agree to give me like a leg up on purchasing the land I want. Um, mm-hmm. Like he is the would-be like white savior here who still just comes off very badly, I think. Not super surprising that John Voight ends up like being a big Trump guy, if we're being real. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. But like what yeah. kind of a person is Ian Rosewood, is involved in the production, probably sees it at the premiere, and then goes... You know, in about uh, 15 years, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. 20 years. <laughs> Someone who doesn't get it. Oh, um, uh, yeah. John, you are, you have, you have multitudes, sir. <laughs> yeah. That's, I feel like, what he would say to your, to your accusation is, um, why, Noah, sir, I contain multitudes. Right. I contain multitudes. Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about Ving Rhames? I think he's awesome in this movie. In- he kicks yeah. a ton of ass in this movie. Well, yeah. and even yeah. going beyond the expected ass kicking, I think that he's so great in the first half hour. Um, he's like goofy. He has movie star quality. That part where uh, you know he wants to uh, dance with Scrappy, and before he goes over there, he kind of like slicks back his knot hair. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. He's really he's really great. Um, and I don't. Th- I mean, you know, we talked about how he spends the Mission Impossible movies sitting down. So it was awesome mm-hmm. to get to see him play this character. Yeah, like I loved watching him like pick up these children. You know, and cut through two lines of defense just to throw them on the back of this train and then get on himself. You know, he is sad for too long, Ving Rames, and it's good to see him yes. and then jump onto a horse. Yeah. You know, it's unbelievable. All right, guys, what else do we have on Rosewood? Anything else? I really liked how, like, the production value of it. You know, and I think it's really aided by the John Williams score, which is very subtle, but like has that like Hollywood patina on it that this feels like it, it believes itself to be in like an awards caliber movie. Yes, yes, exactly that. Yeah. Which is a shame. I mean, it, it, it easily could have been. Like this, yeah. this would have, I feel like this would have won a Pulitzer if it were a book. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's got really nice visual um, references. The symbolism is like super interesting, and it's it's. I you you'd think more people would like this movie because ultimately it is like an action movie. Yeah. I mean, it has a lot of violence in it, and a lot of like hateful violence in it, um, which you know it makes it tough when we're especially looking at it within the context of our rating system, because there are some great like it, there's a great movie in here. I don't know. I think it is great. I think it's just like you can't fight the fact that a movie that hinges so much on on lynching is just like not watchable. You, I, but, but that's just our. That's just like the the starchy duality of our rating system. <laughs> I think it's really good. I was very impressed. Singleton is like borderline uh, painterly at this point as a director. That mm-hmm. shot of uh, Ving Rhames like pressed upon the burning hill at the end when he comes back on the horse is is unforgettable. Um, and I saw that somebody on yeah. Buzzfeed recently wrote that this was, you know, in, in reconsidering his career and eulogizing him. This is, his, this is the film you got to see. So, and I would, Oh, Hanif, Hanif, right? Hanif Abdul-Rakim. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a fantastic piece um, titled, This is the John Singleton movie you really need to watch. Yeah, highly, highly, highly recommend reading that piece. Yeah, I don't disagree. Um, so probably a good bad, but like only by virtue of, you know, our rating system. Toji, what do you think? I, I agree. I agree. Um, good bad. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, good bad feels right. There's just too many people getting ears cut off uh, for this to be like a, a TNT movie. Right. Enjoyable Saturday afternoon for me. But glad yeah. I saw it. Clearly yes. a landmark movie that pe- more people need to know about. Def. Um, well, gang, does anybody want to stump for 2000 Shaft before we get out of here? Anything else to say about this <laughs> filmography? Isn't Christian Bale in Shaft? Yeah, he plays yeah. a racist. <laughs> it's like, if you're a white person, you join the cast of a John Singleton movie at your own peril. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I remember that movie being... I really loved the original Shaft a mm-hmm. lot, so I like wasn't super into like a glossier... I just, I just don't understand the point of adding gloss to to the movie Shaft. Um, and I will probably feel the same about the new one. Um, what about Baby Boy? Tochi, you mentioned that earlier. Is that worth seeing? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I think that, like, I would, I would call, I would do, that would be a very easy bad good. Okay. A very, very easy bad good. Watchable, not great. Oh, it's got, it's got Snoop Dogg in it. Yeah, it's got a be? very, it's, it's got a very, very just impressive Snoop Dogg performance. Um, that's amazing. And speaking of <laughs> constant cable movies, does anyone does anyone want to say anything about Four Brothers? I feel like that's weirdly like the movie of his I heard the most about as like a white teenager in Omaha in 2005. <laughs> but like, yeah, it, it's like this. It's this wonderful. It's this wonderful. But like, the more you think about it, the more is just sort of the just like impossible the premise is but like or wild the premise is it's just this wonderful action movie yeah starring tyrese and mark Wahlberg and like andre 2000 tremendous the, i just love that thing of like well who's the musician we're going to cast in this movie? Yeah, yes like exactly. no other director would either get away with or even endeavor to do something like that right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's so amazing but always interesting results i think when you at least discussable when you give roles oh, to absolutely. Snoop and Andre and all those people. Absolutely. I just I like I think I think Four Brothers is a very charming movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a very charming crime thriller. <laughs> <laughs> With a lot of charming violence. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Um okay, folks. Well, I think we are we're about good here. Um Toji, would you like to make Noah plug your work or would you like to do it yourself? Okay, so so I, uh, Tochi Onyobuchi, am one half uh, of the the Inner Cities podcast. It's me and my boy Azel Williams. We, uh, short story, we met at film school and became very, very, very fast friends. He's a playwright, incredible playwright and TV writer out West. We started the podcast immediately in the aftermath of the 2016 election because we were having increasingly sort of heated but also very involved phone calls about what the fuck just happened. And they were also very funny. And so he came up with a brilliant idea that we should start recording these phone calls. Hence, The Inner Cities was born. You can catch us on iTunes, Google Play, I believe, um, and on Zell's website, azellwill.com. Zell with two L's. 
All right. And Tochi, because I'm your literary agent, I have to insist that you plug <laughs> your books. Oh, yeah, those. <laughs> I, I am, in addition to a, a podcaster, an amateur film critic, a, a novelist, a writer. Um, Professional novelist, not yeah. amateur. <laughs> um, I, my, my first book, uh, Beast Made of Night, a young adult fantasy saga about a boy with tattoos who consumes the sins of other people, um, came out in October of 2017, available in paperback everywhere books are sold. Um, its sequel, Crown of Thunder, will probably be available in paperback sometime this year, um, but is available, hardcover, audiobook, uh, ebook, um, everywhere books are sold. And my upcoming novel uh, in October of 2019, War Girls, which is a futuristic retelling of the Nigerian Civil War, will be dropping. And then, as if that's not enough, January 2020, uh, I will be dropping my adult debut, a novella entitled Riot Baby, that actually brushes up against some of what we discussed about Boys in the Hood. Yeah, there's definitely like a, a very boys in the hoodness <laughs> to Riot Baby, which is great. Um, yeah, and then so Tochi will be at if you're in New York, Tochi will be at the mm-hmm. Javits Center for BEA and BookCon too. So come check us out. Come check him out. Yeah, great. come through. Come through. Expertly done, you two. Um, <laughs> I this was so much fun. What a good time exploring um, the work of. Of John Singleton, uh, R.I.P. and uh, yeah, uh, Tochi, such a pleasure. Thanks for doing this. Oh, a pleasure and an honor. This was this was maybe the best way I could have imagined to spend my Wednesday evening. Perfect. Uh, and Noah, Incredible. Um, you know, not su- not such an event between you and I, but uh, <laughs> but but good to see you and talk to you as always. Next week we're gonna watch the second and third uh, Fifty Shades of Grey movies. No. So buckle up. Wow. <laughs> I would rather. I would rather no, throw we're, myself. We're not gonna do that. Let's pick something better. <laughs> All right. Um, Please do like and subscribe and, and give some love to our other shows on the Playlist Podcast Network. And you can check out BeRealPodcast.com for all of our old shows. And I think that's enough plugs for one episode. I bid you all adieu. Watch some John Singleton. That built-in foundation of racism says that if black people get together, you know, in any way, on any mental level, you know, then they, they don't think that, it's, it, it, that it, it will serve the positive good of everyone. Yeah, but isn't that because white people are frightened of black people. They don't have anything to fear from, from, from black people who want, who want to organize and be unified. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. What you do have to fear is if you don't allow people to or- be organized and unified, then you, 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 those, those, that energy that they have is going to be displaced in other wings. You know, if you're not going to allow me to rise and, and do something positive, you know, then you're going down with me. You see, if I don't have any sense of, of, the, of the future and any hope, why in the hell am I going to want you to have any future and hope? Hell of an ambition to try and change the world with a movie. Well, you know, the, the media is the most powerful thing that we have now. <laughs>